Welcome to the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence. I'm Thomas, and I'm here with my co-host, Seth Rogen. Yeah, that'll never get old. <laughs> That's what you think. Mm-hmm. I mean, why, why, <laughs> why get rid of a good thing? I mean, good lord, it's not <laughs> like I haven't gotten like a million gifs and and like emails and tweets about it. Like, thanks, Drew McLeod. I really appreciate that. <laughs> well, um, you can you can thank your wife for tweeting about it because I'm never gonna let it go. Twitter is a really good argument for complementarianism. I think you and I should explore that sometime. <laughs> you better hope she doesn't listen to this. Oh no, she's outside on the phone, and that's why I said it because she didn't hear it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, um, on the on the topic of fun and joy what was it that you gave up for lent was it fun or enlightenment or joy or something like that it was meat and alcohol although now i'm thinking i should have just given up on telling people what i gave up for lent because there's no sympathy for those seeking the life of holiness and all those (laughs) sorts of things like just sanctification apparently is a lost art on some people uh are you getting getting a lot of crap uh just a little bit (laughs) well hey it is all over soon right just a couple more days just this Thursday. Which will be the day that people are listening to this, actually. So by the time they're listening to this, you might be sipping on something. Yeah, hopefully I'm nowhere near Twitter, because everyone will know I've been sipping on something. Good Lord. <laughs> well, um, <clears throat> the last time we recorded an episode, I told you that since you were going to be not drinking, that I, I, I didn't want to let our listeners down. And so um, I was going to pick up the slack and, and drink two beers instead of one to, to cover for you. You know, bear one another's burdens and all that. Hmm. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, you're really falling on your own sword for me there. I really, I really appreciate it. You know, as I uh, I sip my mint tea, I mean, I just (laughs) vintage vintage tea bag, generic brand from Whole Foods. You know, mint tea. I really appreciate that. Well, I'll I'll give you a chance to sip on that while I uh, describe what I'm drinking here. Yes, Um, please do. I think I told you as much vivid detail as you can. Please. So I think I told you last time I, I had a Taxman can. Uh, they're still on sale. It's like six bucks mm. for a four pack, and they're usually ten bucks. So I keep buying them. They've got a, a, a huge variety. So this one is actually called Raspberry Ginger Exemption. Ooh. It's a Belgian style triple ale with fruit and spices. It's not quite a sour, um, but it's almost a sour with uh, with raspberry ginger notes. Uh, it's phenomenal. Oh, that actually sounds really tasty. I've I've been going through kind of a phase where IPAs are kind of my thing, but the idea of yeah. a sour lately has been sounding pretty pretty tasty. So I'll have to keep my eyes open when I make my three hundred dollar beer run to Whole Foods on a Thursday <laughs> night after church. I, not to pour more salt in the wound, but to more to pour more oh, salt. Oh, please in the wound. do! I'm not salty at all. So just it's just an overabundance <laughs> of salt here, baby. Just keep pouring. Um. A couple of weeks ago for uh, for my birthday, a buddy of mine uh, and I went to the Sour Wild Funk Fest uh, hosted by a local brewery here, but they invited 57 uh, breweries from around the country to bring sours, um, and so there was just a huge variety, like every brewery bought brought like between three and, and nine different um, sours and they gave you a little glass you could just go taste as much as you wanted, um, so super, super good what they had. I think my favorite was this... Uh, uh, ginger sour it was just phenomenal but mm. anyway it um it was a it was a 
really good time on sour beers. Ginger is a really underrated flavor for beer. Like I had a, a ginger, uh, it wasn't quite a sour, but it was like a ginger with a bit of IPA. So it was almost like a pale ale, both ginger in it. Yeah. It Ooh. was really tasty. And I mean, it was a little too light for me. I like a little more heft to my beer, but it was, I think ginger is going to be like the next big thing. I don't think we have graduated to avocado beer yet, but I think <laughs> ginger, I, th- I think ginger is going to be kind of the next, uh, the next runaway train as it comes to beer. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Um, so the other one that I got here is called Hop Audit Mosaic. So it's the Mosaic uh, Hops. It's a an IPA, um, IBU fifty. I get just you know light and refreshing. Not not super super hoppy, but but hoppy enough to um, to have a little bit of that bitter. So I've got both of Wait, these so, here. Wh- um, what's the, what's the name of that enough, one? What was the name of that one? It's called Hop Audit Mosaic. Oh my gosh, my heart like almost popped out of my chest because I just paid taxes this week and you, it sounded like you said audit and I was like, oh no, oh no, <laughs> no <laughs> that I don't no don't 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 bring those back those memories back to me, Ricky Bobby. Don't put that on me. So well, it is called Taxman Brewing. Taxman I mean, Brewing. Yeah, it's called there, audit. Little, so I think I was as a libertarian, I was a little triggered by that, but I decided to go with it. But then you said hop audit, <laughs> and I'm like, ooh, I don't know. Yep, how I can yep. Roll with that. Audit, audit those hops. So yeah. um, I'll be auditing these hops throughout the episode. Um, and uh, so you just you sit there and enjoy your tea, and and I'll I'll pick up your slack and bear your burden with with these two delicious beers from taxman i'm pretty certain when paul said submit to one another in reverence for christ he wasn't talking about you wielding beer over me but if that's what (laughs) helps you sip your tax man and all that stuff then you do you boo boo you do you (laughs) all right so today in light of the living hell that i'm in drinking this mint tea while listening to thomas sip on something clearly sounds awesome we're continuing (laughs) the series we began uh a couple episodes ago i think in episode 15 and this series as all of you might recall is called a christian theology you and i made it a big point of not saying uh, you know christian theology it's a christian theology it's it's our take on it not you know we're not taking uh we're not assuming that we speak for all christians everywhere because we can't and we don't so that's kind of the reason why that is. And if you haven't listened to episodes 15 or 16 yet, uh, we would encourage you to take two hours of your time. Trust me, we think they're two hours really well spent. And give them a listen just so you're, you're kind of caught up on what's going on here. It's, we talk briefly about what is theology, and then we talk about uh, some of our hermeneutical uh, priorities as we talk about theology and Jesus. And so uh, I, I would give those a listen just so you're all caught up. We've had, like... 25 new likes on Twitter, on Facebook, and like 10 new Twitter followers, and like, what was it, 70 new subscribers via Overcast, and so there's maybe 100 new people listening to this, and we have new Patreon supporters, and it's just crazy. So it's it's we're just so grateful that you're all here. So if you want to see, if you feel like you're kind of dropped in the middle of a conversation, those two episodes before this might help kind of help you kind of navigate what the conversation is like. And so, and also we thank you for joining us. So cheers to you. And I'm going to sip my lukewarm mint tea while Thomas sips his and talks. <laughs> uh, and actually, yeah, so episode 16 fits in really well with this being Easter week. We make a pretty good apologetic case for the historical reality of the resurrection. So um, around this time, people are thinking about that and talking about that. So if you haven't listened, um, we, we, we we think we make a pretty good case for the historical uh, reliability of the resurrection. And it does lay the foundation for what we're going to talk about today. Um, but we have, uh, like you mentioned, we've had a large 
number of new listeners and subscribers. We've even had some growth on uh, Patreon. Hey, I said it right. I'm so proud of myself. Um, so a big hearty cheers and welcome to all of you. Yeah, we're, we're up to 12 patrons and just a massive thank you. We're chugging along towards completing the Beyond Bud Light goal on Twitter, which I still think is one of the more clever things you and I have ever done. <laughs> uh, and so we're, we're just stoked that anyone would want to listen to us. We've, we're averaging, I think I went back and looked briefly, we're hitting well over a thousand uh, downloads and listens per episode. And Man. I think we're well over 30,000 for, for last year. And so we're just, we're just absolutely stoked that anyone would listen to us and would support us in this insane but fun endeavor that you and i have basically thrown ourselves into (laughs) (laughs) yeah it it, it, it's it's very humbling um and super glad to see that that people are um finding this meaningful and and useful and helpful i mean we certainly do and it's it's so great to hear that others are as well and speaking of patreon um when we started patreon we we promised that we were going to tithe one-tenth of our earnings to other organizations that were doing the lord's work we just think that that's uh, a good thing to do an important thing to do um and so we want to you know for accountability purposes we want to give an update and say that we just gave our very first donation um we actually made a donation to cbe international which stands for christians for biblical egalitarianism so nick uh, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about cbe international yeah, CBE, it's uh, Christians for Biblical Equality. They're, uh, they're actually located out near a few of our listeners in Minneapolis, Minnesota. They're a uh, nonprofit that advocates for the equality and equal standing and participation of women in church, society, and the home. And so they're egalitarian across the board. Uh, my wife, Allison, has worked with them. She did an internship with them. Uh, she helps coordinate their conferences, and they've got a really cool conference coming up this uh, August 2nd through 4th in Houston, Texas. So as if you need an excuse to go to Texas, you can go to see the CBE conference this August. And, I mean, we did, we did a ton of stuff on this in the last episode of the Split Frame of Reference podcast that my wife and I do on the one on Holda and Hermeneutics. So we actually have a discount code, actually, in that episode to help, you know, cover some of the costs if you plan on going to that. But, yeah, CBE just does a lot of really good work. They I've published with them. Uh, they're ironic they're passionate about uh, spreading uh, biblical egalitarianism which is basically just the belief that women have an equal voice and being called by the spirit to ordained ministry and leading and preaching and teaching in the church and all that sort of stuff so that that's basically what cbe is and i'm i'm, I'm just stoked we we decided it was unanimous for both of us we were just like yeah that sounds awesome so we we gave them our tithe for that and it's really cool. Like they're just doing, they're doing the Lord's work basically. So it's, yeah, that's that CBE and what we did in a nutshell. Very cool. And if you want to learn more about them, you can go to cbeinternational.org or if you're on Twitter, you can follow them at cbeint, cbeint, um, to check out some of the good work they're doing. But once again, we're a- we were able to do that because some of you, our listeners, have been so generous with us. Um, and, and we're just so grateful that, that we're able to do that and that you've partnered with us. And, and we just think that together we're, we're partnering for cool things, and, and we're very excited about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why don't, why don't we go ahead and, uh, <clears throat> Nick, let's jump into our content. Yeah. So up, up to this point in this series, and it's going to be a long series, we've stated our belief that Christian theology should start with Jesus. 
and we've provided our reasoning for that position uh, in the past few episodes. Uh, in the next few, in the next few episodes, we're going to actually begin to do actually that. We're we're going to see what Jesus actually teaches us about God through His words and His actions and all those sorts of things. So we're kind of moving from the theoretical, you know, kind of conceptualize conceptualization to the practical and how Jesus actually what what Jesus actually reveals to us. Which leads to an important question, Nick. Where should we start? Well, we've been over that. We we start with Jesus. I mean, you've said you had two beers. You sure you haven't had any more than just two? <laughs> All right, smart Alec. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yes, we start with Jesus. That's not what I'm asking. Where do we start with Jesus with Jesus? Uh, hmm. In other words, yes, we start with Jesus, but but where in Jesus' life, in the, you know, do we start with the crucifixion, the resurrection? Wait, you know, where do we start? Um, my vote for what it's worth, is that we start at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the Synoptic Gospels. Hmm. Right. And just to be clear, you and I can go back and look at the Synoptic Gospels because we're Christians and we believe that Jesus actually raised, but we only can know so much through the resurrection and we need to know a lot more about Jesus through his life. And so I'm completely down with that. But first, let's make sure everyone knows what we mean when we say the synoptics and the synoptic gospel. So like, just for those who haven't taken a seminary course or anything like that, what do you mean when, uh, we, well, I think we just need to tell them. We, we just need to make sure what we mean by the synoptics. That's a good call. Um, why don't you explain synoptics while I take a few sips of this beer? You know, I mean, that, that's really real cold. That's super cold. I mean, I, I hope Mike Pence goes back to Indiana and takes all y'all back to the 1920s and prohibition. Like that's what you deserve. That's so mean. Yes, yes, this beer is cold. It's tasty, too, although it's not as salty as you're being. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, the synoptics. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, synopsis, you know, so... Not John. Yeah, I know, not John, not John. Uh, The synoptic gospels are written, and uh, they're very different from John. It's not to say they're entirely different. They're all about Jesus, but the synoptic gospels have an air of... Uh, historical, uh, they're, they're less speculative. So, for example, John begins at literally the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Whereas the Synoptic Gospels kind of bypass that and go straight to most of them. I mean, you do have the virgin birth alluded to in Matthew and Luke. But the, 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 the Synoptic Gospels are more focused on, uh, we might say, the historical or the, the, the mundane aspects of Jesus' life as, and they depict Jesus as, you know, Messiah, Son of God, and all these other things, where John has kind of a, John is kind of a helicopter view of Jesus, you know what I mean? So John is looking like high above and looking down, whereas the Synoptic Gospels tend to be more earthy and more centered perspe- you know, from a perspective standpoint on the ground with Jesus. And so all, all four Gospels are absolutely necessary to understanding uh, Jesus and who he was, but John has a higher up view looking down, whereas the Synoptic Gospels are kind of on the ground with Jesus. And so that's that's why we say we should probably start with the Synoptics and work from there. And uh, the Synoptic Gospels were probably also the uh, written earlier than John, although we can't say John was written a lot later than a lot of people like to suggest. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are earlier than John, and so we start with the earliest source about Jesus that we have, and those are I mean, the earliest Gospels we have, and that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And have I given you enough time to quench your thirst on your salty beer? <sighs> yes. Thank you. Oh, you're so, welcome. in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus' ministry begins after he's baptized by, jo- by John in the Jordan River. And 
in all three of these Gospels, his ministry is immediately characterized by two things, teaching and healing. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, Matthew summarizes Jesus' activity, and he says this. He says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. Yeah, just like show and tell. What now? I mean, don't you remember elementary school? I mean, I, I don't because I was homeschooled, but I, I can imagine that you'd bring something in and show it to the class and then talk about it. Jesus' ministry was a show-and-tell ministry. His words and his actions went hand-in-hand. Hand. Exactly. Hold, wait, you were homeschooled? Yeah. Huh. I, uh, I, I never would have guessed that. Yep, I was, I was homeschooled. My, from babiness to high schoolness, I was homeschooled. Ah, oh, that, that, that explains a lot. Does it? Yeah, it kind of, <laughs> no, it kind of does. Yeah, no, it kind of does. <laughs> it no, I'm just kidding. So, I, I guess, did, did you do show and tell in homeschool? I mean, I just go out to the backyard, kill something, and bring it back in and say, this is what I killed. Here are the seven <laughs> okay. things about it. All right, show and tell. There you go. All right, anyway. Um, <laughs> so we can see that in all three synoptics, but I think it's a, it, it's especially clear in Luke. And uh, Nick, you know how much I love Luke. Yeah, you do have a thing for Luke. Isn't your son named Luke? He is, actually, yeah. Any connection with the Gospel of Luke? Um, yes, but that might be TMI for our listeners. Um, let's just say that I spent about a year and a half preaching through Luke and Acts at my church. Oh, Pastor Bible Juke. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Enjoy yeah, we'll, your secrets. We'll, yep. We'll, we'll leave it at that. Um, he may have been born sometime around the time that I was doing that or not. We'll just, you know. Anyway, moving on, moving on. Yeah, moving on. Um, yeah. In Luke, <laughs> in Luke <laughs> chapter four, verses eighteen through twenty-one, uh, Jesus begins his public ministry by announcing his mission statement with a quotation from the book of Isaiah. Uh, it comes from Isaiah chapter sixty-one, verses one and two, uh, with a little bit of uh, another verse thrown in there. Um, but here's what he says. Here's what he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. He, he's there in the synagogue. He's handed the scroll. He opens the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads this section. Here's what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So that's what he read. From Isaiah, they would have been familiar with that. Then Luke tells us he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Then Luke tells us the eyes of all the people in the synagogue were fixed on him, and then he did something remarkable. Then Luke says, Jesus began to say to the people in the synagogue, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Hmm. And this is a, a really big deal. And if this is the mission of Jesus, and if Jesus is God's clearest and most complete self-expression, i.e. God's fullest disclosure of God's self, uh, revelation and all that, we talked about that, this gives us a 
pretty indisputably clear insight into what is important to God. What what it tells us essentially what we need to know about God. And it's not the full, only verse that tells us this, but this is a great if you need to get God right and explain what Jesus tells us about God, this is a perfect verse for that. Exactly. Uh the the things that he emphasizes, um you know, the proclaiming good news to the poor, proclaiming release to the captives, uh, recovery of sight to the blind, uh, freeing the oppressed, liberating the oppressed. Um, all of these things are important to God. But I, I, I also think uh, what Jesus, I think what Jesus says there is is immensely important. The things that he does say is very, very important. But I also think that what Jesus leaves out is really important as well. Ooh, leaves out. What does Jesus leave out? So, actually... I said that this was a quotation from Isaiah. Jesus actually stopped reading right in the middle of a sentence in the book of Isaiah. And he stopped reading right before Isaiah says, quote, and the day of vengeance of our God, end quote. Um, so I, I want to be careful not to make an argument from silence, but that's a pretty big omission to stop reading right before and the day of vengeance of our God. Um, it, it's, a, it's a pretty big thing to leave out. And when we consider his ministry on earth, it's actually pretty consistent with that. Jesus never enacted vengeance on anyone, um, much to the chagrin of the, the zealots who were expecting a Messiah, the, the Messiah to bring a violent, vengeful smackdown on their Roman oppressors. Um, now, I know that some people will argue that uh, he didn't bring vengeance with his first coming, but that he will with his second, and, and they'll point to some other passages in the New Testament, especially the book of Revelation. Now, I have my own thoughts on that, but I know that you recently did a big study in the book of Revelation. So so what's your take on that, Jesus and vengeance and, and all that? It's, it's a big topic. It's... It's one of the more com- it's one of the more complex uh, aspects I think of 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 Christology and eschatology. You know, study of Jesus and study of the end things, and and here uh, Jesus often kind of compresses the two together uh, in a way that's not immediately obvious to to us how it all how it all pan out. Um, how I think Jesus uh, brings in revelation, uh, vengeance, and revelation. There are two aspects to it. One is. In no instance that I can see in the book of Revelation is vengeance a human affair. Uh, I think that's Hmm. insanely clear throughout Paul and the synoptics and Revelation. I think in no instance is a human given permission or uh, to commit retribution or violence, Mm -hmm. nor is does Jesus uh, bless them for doing so. He didn't Mm -hmm. he didn't bless someone for uh, Peter for cutting off the, the person's ear. In the garden, right, and so right. I think vengeance, whatever it is, and however we understand that, cannot be a human affair. It's something that only God is is free to engage in, and that, of course, uh, for me, brings up two things. One, it assumes that human beings are pretty incapable of of exacting vengeance in a way that actually, well, wouldn't just make it vengeance. But also, I think uh, the character of God uh, suggests that God. Um, in the book of Revelation, God's character, or rather God's response, you know, with violence or retribution, is almost always against the principalities and powers. Mm. So, for example, in the book of Revelation, in no instance does God go after slaves. In fact, you have a very strong anti-slavery uh, motif throughout. 
the mm-hmm. book of Revelation, especially a critique of the, uh, the, the excesses of the Roman economy. And so Jesus's response to, uh, to these principalities and powers is, you might call it vengeful or retributive, uh, but it's at it, but it's because God, or rather Jesus, is responding to what has happened to the innocent, and so mm. a lot of what happens, I think, in discussions of of scripture and violence is uh, is the assumption for on some people, not everyone, obviously, is that uh, when God responds in we might say forceful ways, we automatically assume you know we automatically run from that, and my response is well, it really mm. depends. Are the principalities and powers? Who are exploiting people, murdering people, committing genocide, enslaving, you know, or martyring people and stuff like that. God seems very quick to respond to that sort of stuff, but I don't see any instance where God responds and does the same thing to the enslaved or the enslaved or the oppressed or to women or to children or anything like that. Hmm. And so okay. God's quote retribution is always aimed against the principalities and the powers, whether human or demonic, or in some cases hmm. I think you could argue even both. Right. Um, okay. So that's that's about where that's where my study of Revelation led me. God does sometimes act in a we might call a vengeful force, but sure. it's never against people who are, well, we might say the the oppressed. God seems to respond to the oppressors because of what they've done to the oppressed. Hmm. So that that's kind of okay. in a nutshell. That's kind of my take. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. So you know, from your perspective, do you think that there's any significance to the fact that Jesus didn't include that in his mission statement the the vengeance of god in regard to at least yeah. his first coming and maybe his second yeah no I, I think just... there no I, I think there is something to be said there i mean it is a pretty important omission and i don't have a hundred percent yes uh, i have it figured out one is sure if you leave something unstated but it's in the very next sentence there is a sense in which i think you could argue um, so, for example, just to give a uh, brief case for it, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And uh, he's echoing, echoing, Jesus is echoing from the cross, uh, Psalm 100, or Psalm 22, I think it is. And mm-hmm. if you keep reading in Psalm 22, it's about how the God has ultimately not abandoned the, the Psalter or the psalmist. And yeah. Jesus is invoking that. And so you're kind of, you know, it's like when I say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, the, the next thing that pops into your head, that, that saved a wretch like me. And so there, and so I think, him leaving it out is suggestive of a lot of things, but I don't think, and but but what I don't think one can say with a hundred percent certainty is that um, him leaving it out didn't mean God wouldn't be vengeful. He, I think, Jesus is being Jesus and being provocative, and he stopped short <laughs> of quoting it because he knows that's what they're next going to think, and then they're going to think, why did he leave it out, and what does that mean? And Jesus, in my mind, doesn't really tell us because. At, at this point, to use vengeance language in the synagogue would not have just gone over well. There's no reason to do it. Right. Um, and because there's also no context for it, and I think you and I talked about this, the idea of Messiah bringing vengeance, it would have affirmed, I think you're right about this, would affirm that the Messiah would have been a violent, vengeful figure. But also, if he says this, it would have caused a riot because people would have gone straight for their, their swords and they would have responded to Rome and everyone would have been wiped out because that's just right. what happens. Right. And so I think there's a lot of nuances to it, and I think you're right to, to it. You're, you're right to kind of point to the the there. It is an omission. He does omit it, and I think that's really important for us as we consider that Jesus may be may be suggestive. It may be a lot of things, but what we can't say is um, that therefore Jesus, you know, is being vengeful by omitting right. it. And in fact, he right. seems to be 
well, it's Jesus trying to, I'm, I'm, right now I'm thinking how to put him in a box and Jesus being Jesus just <laughs> doesn't, I mean, you, Jesus doesn't, that's the nice thing about Jesus. The instant you think you got him, he goes all liberal on you or he goes all <laughs> conservative on you and you're just kind of left going like, well, like a sitcom moment, that's our Jesus, <laughs> you know? And so, <laughs> yeah. no, I think, I think that's what's really profound about what you brought out about the, uh, about it because that is an important omission. And I think a lot of people kind of go, well, but Revelation has him being violent. You know, we all know, we all remember the Mark Driscoll thing. You know, the <laughs> Jesus is coming back with, you know, he's tatted up and he's got a tattoo on his leg, and you're kind of like, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And it's kind of like, well, yeah, but why is he coming back? You know, and you don't, don't ask mention. these kind of, yeah, exactly. You know? We don't mention that name on this podcast. We don't. Name. Who? Who? <laughs> exactly. I, yes. What I do think is is fascinating though is he omits it, and at least in his first coming, right. There is no vengeance, right? So it, it it really does encapsulate and describe his first coming. And we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, but if we go back to that mission statement, and then we, we look at the rest of the chapter and, and the following chapter, Luke's, uh, Luke chapters 4 and 5, um, we see that they're filled with exorcisms, and they're filled mm-hmm. with healings. Um, mm-hmm. and, and we see that both his actions and his message were about liberation and restoration. Uh, And like you said earlier, if Jesus really is God with us, if Jesus really is the exact imprint of God's very being, um, then God must be a God fundamentally concerned with liberation and restoration. Yeah, and and as someone who is a pacifist, although not by nature or by desire, there is this notion of, of what, and, and this is, this gets into my view of the Trinity. I don't like having disjunction in the Trinity. And so if hmm. Jesus seems to be equally concerned with both the spiritual and uh, spiritual restoration and liberation and physical restoration and liberation, uh, then to posit that God is vengeful, and we'll get into this a lot when we talk about atonement, but that God, the, we'll say God the Father is vengeful versus, mm-hmm. and Jesus is not, right. then you have a, a disruption in the Trinity. You don't, you're, you're, there's a, a, a disjunctive nature within the Trinity, and then at that hmm. point it's like, how do you have a Trinity anymore? You can't have right. a Trinity at odds with each other. And so right. I don't know where you stand on, on pacifism. Um, I don't know if you've, I, you and I have ever talked about it, but whatever we can say about this, you can't have Jesus advocating one thing and, God, and the Father ad, advocating something else. And I think you and I would 100% agree on that. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, okay. I was just and, making sure. Yeah, Go I've, ahead, I've yeah. become... I used to not be pacifistic, and then uh, as I've studied Jesus in depth for the past few years, um, I've come to the conclusion that I, I think that's I think that's the only... only conclusion like like you it wouldn't be my natural inclination but i, I think that's what jesus calls us to um, yeah no i, I completely agree yeah and it's it's i mean i preached a sermon on luke and you know the turning the other cheek thing and i'm sitting there going like it's really hard for me to s- sit up here and say do as i yeah. say and don't do as i do and jesus right. doing the same thing and so yeah, <laughs> I, yeah and so it's 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 one of those i mean as a baptist right i'm you know a wesleyan <laughs> baptist um i'm not inclined to tell people that they should be pacifists because my, you know, because there's, I know a lot of police officers, I know a lot of military men and women, and it's one of those. I don't know where you stand on this, but it's one of those. This is a, an issue where I think good Christians can disagree on the policy aspect of how this works. For me, and, and I've told people that in church, you're getting one Baptist perspective amongst 200 of us here, and so uh, that is something to have a, the conversation about. But in my mind, I, I try to say this is a sensitive issue, but we need to agree that this is the vision that Jesus provides. And I think if we can all agree that is the vision, now how do we get there? 
then a lot of the conversations would go away. And I, I serve at a pretty open church on that, but I know there's differences of opinion. But um, but anyway, Jesus, uh, and in fact, I, I think you're, you're right on this point. He, he'd probably reject kind of a, a distinction between these two categories. And I think he'd see them, you know, the spiritual restoration and the physical restoration as deeply interconnected. And I think this is evidenced in his healing of the paralyzed man in Luke 5. Uh, he heals the guy physically by saying, friend, your sins are forgiven. Uh, the religious leaders, of course, in the audience get all upset, saying, who can forgive sins but God alone? And, of course, the joke is, you're right. Uh, then Jesus <laughs> replies, <laughs> but Jesus replies and says, which is easier to, which is easier to say, your sins, are forgiven, ha- your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the ones who was paralyzed, I say to you, notice that, I say to you, stand up and take your bed and go to your home. So we see here that Jesus sees physical healing and the forgiveness of sins as connected in some way. It's not as some of our Reformed friends like to say, the city of man, you know, the city of man and the city of God. Uh, there is a, a deep, there are a lot of bridges here to the point where I'm not sure you can actually say they're two different cities. Now, just to make sure that people aren't hearing what you're not saying. Jesus wasn't saying that that this man's paralysis was a direct result of his own personal sin, right? No, no, I I don't think so at all. Um, This isn't like some strands of, say, prosperity gospel or word of faith traditions where there's a a kind of a direct cause and effect relationship between personal sin and physical sickness or malady. Oh, I hate you so much. That is so mean to do to me. I mean, but as if someone has cancer because they're a worse sinner than others just doesn't seem to work. And shame on you. Oh, my gosh. Shame on you. Jesus is saying that there's a a connection between the overall spiritual brokenness of the world and physical brokenness of the world. And he's showing and telling that sin has made a mess of things. And he, as the image of the unseen God, the word made flesh, has come to put it all back together. So it's not as if just because you said a naughty word, therefore you got cancer. It's the world is is broken and that impacts people physically and and physio- and spiritually and all these sorts of things. And so to draw a disjunction by saying, hey, just because you said a naughty word when you stubbed your toe, therefore you're going to hell, just <laughs> really seems to miss... Uh, the depths of what Jesus is saying. And it's like one of those things where the words of Jesus cut to the cut to the heart really quickly. And the instant you think you got Jesus figured out, he's wielding that metaphorical sword. I mean, the word of, you know, the word, his word. And right. he just kind of is putting it straight back on you going, sorry, no, that's, that's too easy for me, you know? And, but he's come to put it all back together is what I think I'm trying to get at. Yeah. So, and I think you hit it there. There, there was, it's not like he was saying like this guy's paralysis was a direct result of his personal sin, but th- there's overall brokenness um, that that permeates all of creation, physical and spiritual, and, and to separate those out is, is difficult. Um, and as a matter of fact, he makes uh, in the very next story he makes the same point, um, but from the opposite direction. So, mm-hmm. as the story goes in Luke chapter five, Jesus approaches Levi, who was a tax collector, and he invites. Levi to become one of his disciples. Now, as a reminder for our listeners, tax collectors were not very well liked by their fellow Jews. They were viewed as traitors. They were viewed as people who were in bed with the the Roman oppressors just to make a profit off of their oppressed brothers and sisters. Um, so, so the 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 
average everyday Jew and the zealot didn't really think very highly of the Jewish tax collector. Um, but that's who Jesus calls to be his disciple. And so Levi ends up throwing a party for Jesus. Um, and Levi invites his friends. And his friends, you know, he probably hung out with people like him. So his friends are classified as tax collectors and sinners. Um, and once again, the, the religious leaders are upset by Jesus' action here. Um, this time, they're upset that Jesus is keeping company with, with those kinds of people, right? Um, and so they're, they're starting to complain. You know, why does Jesus hang out with tax collectors and sinners? And, and Jesus hears their complaint, and he responds with this remarkable response. And he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so we see here by with Jesus' response that, that Jesus clearly believes, Jesus his response clearly indicates that he viewed sinners as sick people in need of healing, not as lawbreakers in need of judgment. I'm going to say that again. Jesus' response clearly indicates that he viewed sinners as sick people in need of healing, not as lawbreakers in need of judgment. Jesus' ministry then, which once again reflects the heart and character of God, was a ministry of restoration, not a ministry of condemnation. And I think that that's really important. Yeah. And it's worth pointing out here that Jesus always healed, always restored, and always delivered. I mean, he never inflicted anyone with any kind of disease or, or, or pain or affliction or anything like that. He never told people that their infirmities were God's punishment or chastisement or, to slightly make a point, for the glory of God. And so it's one of those things, it's not as if God took the sin or, you know, the pain from another person and went, you know what, let's let's put that on this person here. No, he, he removed it entirely from that person. And that is a great demonstration of God's glory, but not the fact that they were sick to begin with. It's, you know, and yeah, well, we'll leave that there. There's more to be said, but we'll leave that there. <laughs> so, so just to play the devil's advocate here, um, because I know that some people will probably think or probably ask this, what about Jesus's statements in John 9 regarding the man born blind? Well, let's take a look at it. Okay. And yeah, so Here's you want to read it? Uh, All right, perfect. Yeah, I'll read it. I'll read it. Um, John chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, um, from the NRSV. Here's how John tells us. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then Jesus spits on some dirt and rubs the saliva mud mixture on the dude's eyes and the guy can see. Uh, that last part was my own paraphrase, by the way. Um, that was a good but... message translation. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, the, the, the question here is, when Jesus says, you know, from the NRSV, quote, he was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him, end quote, is Jesus saying that this man's blindness was for God's glory? What's your take on that? 
I, I my view of and this is a question more of theodicy like why why is there sin and or why how does you know right. sin and evil and all these sorts of things you know and and I keep coming back to to the the classic text in Romans uh, eight uh, where it talks about where, where Paul talks about and the the preposite or the 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 participle there seems to indicate God works with all things with or God works through works to bring about all things with those who love God. And so it's a dative of, of relationship. Uh, for those that don't get it, basically God works with the person. Uh, the, for those who love God are the people God works with. And so here I think there's an element of that. And so, for example, uh, Jesus flat out says, no, this man, no one sinned here. But sin is completely removed. He was born blind so that the works of God might be revealed by or in or we might say through him. And so uh, the glory is not what is interesting here. Uh, what is powerful here is that God uh, is the one who basically cures him, and then people are like, "Oh wow, that's what the, that's where this was all headed." It's not as if God needed to make someone blind in order to reveal God's glory. God's glory is already perfect, you know, and that's something I think you and I have talked briefly about el- elsewhere. God's glory is perfect. We don't need to see this reflected in human sin and suffering, um, and so that's kind of my theory. Is you have sin is not the question here he was born blind so that god's works might be revealed in him or through him and so he's the person by means of god revealing what god's character is like and that of course is the works of the one who sent him which includes healing and all these sorts of things that come about of it god's greatest glory is revealed in the undoing of evil and and pain and suffering and so it seems to me kind of odd to basically say uh, God needed this person to be born blind so that God could be glorified. It seems kind of the opposite. So I'm gonna I'm gonna present a theory to you, and you've studied Greek. You can you can critique this or tell me what you think on it. Um, right. It sounds like what I what I hear you're saying at, at at the base level is that the blindness wasn't for the glory of God, but the healing was. Right? Is That's that, how I take it. Okay, and I, I mean, I think everybody, I think that's basically indisputable. Jesus doesn't say that the blindness was for the glory of God, but that the healing was. But I'm going to take it a step further. Um, do you have a, a Greek text in front of you? I can, I'm opening it right now, as a matter of fact. Okay. Uh, let me see, let me so get to I'm that. Just, so, yeah, go ahead. I want to present a theory to you. You can read along um, in the Greek as I do this. Um you and I know this, and I'll explain it for our listeners. The the punctuation in the Greek text was, is not original, right? It was Correct. it was added later by by um, scribes and, and translators and copyists, right? Yep. Okay. Um, which means that sometimes punctuation in our current translations may or may not be the best breakdown. So I'm gonna just throw something out here, and, and again, this is just a, a theory. Um, may not be may not be super compelling. Um, but, but if you look at Jesus' response, um, so the, the, the rabbis ask, uh, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, in order that uh, he would be born blind, would mm-hmm. be my rough uh, literal translation. Yeah. Um, verse 3, Jesus answered, Jesus responded, neither this man nor, uh, neither this man sinned, nor his parents. Um, then, but in order that the works of God might be revealed in him. So, in other words, Jesus' response 
doesn't there's there's no um, main verb in that second clause. So the, what the NRSV does is it reads he was born blind, right? They they read that in from the disciples' question, right? So there, it's kind of an ellipsis. But there's another way to read that, and so I want you to I want to read to you, uh, beginning. Um, in verse 3 through verse 4. This is going to be my translation from the Greek. Um, what I think might work a little bit differently. So Jesus says, neither this man was, uh, neither this man sinned nor his parents, uh, but in order that the works of God might be revealed in him, it is necessary for us to work the works of the one who sent me while it is still day. Um, in other words, I think one way to read this is that is that Jesus isn't talking about why he was born blind, but he's while while they're looking past, he's looking forward. He's saying, "Stop asking about sin. In order for the works of God to be revealed, it's necessary for us to work the works of God." So he's not talking at all about the cause of sin, but he's pointing forward to the um, or the cause of the blindness. He's pointing forward to the 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 healing of it. Um, you know, I'm throwing you. You know, on the spot here, but but what do you think of that as a as a translation? Uh, it's possible uh, there is you know you have what's called a henna clause or a purpose mm-hmm. clause, uh, but so that uh, the works of God might be displayed, manifested, or I would say made known um, in Him or en auto. So you have something you have a prepositional in Him, or you might say it's there's an agency to it by Him or through Him, and so. Um, but and then you have the language of day, uh, which is a conjunct, uh, a um, oh, what's the phrase? Um, anyway, it's uh, therefore it is it's an, it's a, it, therefore it is necessary uh, for us to work out the works of the one who sent me, or we must work. Um, and so I think there's something to that translation. I think um, the fact that there is no um, Jesus doesn't even address the blindness. Um, and I think that's more interesting, or that's right, equally right. interesting. Yeah, and so it's right. not that the, this man sinned or his parents. He just doesn't even answer the question. He just, right. The, the whole point is, I'm not even going to talk about that. But that the works of God might be revealed through him, and so we. And so it's not that the healing is the issue. It's but it's necessarily we must work the works of him who sent me while it is still day. And yeah. So I think there yeah. is a sense of, of 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 God at work, but also our our work as well. And so that would actually refer to probably back to the N auto, the, the in him. Um, right. And so, yeah, the, I think there is something to that. So I, I think baseline, what we can agree on here is that, that in John nine, remember we're talking about this idea of Jesus never, never points to somebody's affliction and says, Oh, this is for God's glory in your life, right? Your sickness, your right. disease is for God's glory. Jesus always, even in this case, at, at a minimum, what he's saying is that the healing is for God's glory, not the disease. But but even then, there's there's reason to question that particular translation um, and suggest that he doesn't actually care all that much about the the cause of the blindness. He cares much more about bringing liberation and restoration. Would, would you agree with that? And I think verse five is a nice capstone to that. As long as or whenever. Or, as I am in the world, or in the world, um, I am the light of the world, and so it's not about glory or anything like that. It's about revelation. It's about yeah. showing who God is uh, through Christ, 
And right. so there is an element, um, the works of God, I am the light of the world. And it, it's it basically, you don't have, with, with these works being done, we're seeing what God is really like. Yeah. And God is not, God doesn't need to do these sorts of things. Human sin, and there is an element to it. Who sinned or his parents? It's like, well, yeah, if you sin, ten, bad stuff tends to happen sometimes. I don't know. But the point is not on that. It just, I just, I just love it. He just doesn't answer the question. He goes, it's not about sin. It's not about that. You're, you're right. missing the point, guys. And right. he points it back to the one who sent me because I'm the light of the world. And he is. The, yeah. and there is something remarkable about the fact that no one goes, wow, that he was blind. But then Jesus talks about him him being the light of the world and stuff like that. Yeah. And yeah. so there's something, I think, quite profound about how Jesus is like, put your eyes on the right. You need a, it's, it's, you need a different paradigm if you're going to ask that sort of question. But if you have a new paradigm, you wouldn't ask that question in the first place. <laughs> there you go. That's a good way to put it. And, and I want to make sure that we don't pass over your very important point, which is that, that Jesus always healed. He always mm-hmm. restored. Jesus never inflicted harm. He never inflicted disease. And, and looking at this record, he never even told somebody that their their disease or their affliction was for the glory of God, which we sometimes hear, right? Um, as a matter of fact, in Peter's gospel presentation to the Roman centurion in Acts chapter 10, Peter summarized Jesus' ministry this way. He said, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Jesus' ministry was always restoration, always healing, always liberation, never baptizing somebody's affliction as the will of God for their life or for God's glory or afflicting them with or, or punishing them with, with sickness or disease for any reason. It was always liberation, always restoration. And I love that we have, it's, it's just so obvious, who are oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. It, <laughs> yeah. God, is, the, God is not God is not the devil. I mean, I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> and that's something I think a lot of Christians kind of forget is when you attribute bad stuff to God, you forget that there's a devil. And it's like, I don't need God to look like the devil. I don't need God right, to look like, right. I don't need God to look sinful or, or arrogant or condescending or look like me or look like a government or anything like that. I have a devil for that. Like and so right. let's not let's not get these things crossed, you know, and and it's like the, the point we're trying to make here is that right from the start of Jesus' ministry, uh, his ministry was characterized by words and actions that centered on healing, liberation, and restoration, not judgment or condemnation. And as the one who makes the the unseen God known, uh, this tells us something important about what God is like and what God cares about. And and while we're talking about Luke and healings, there, there's a really interesting story in Luke six that I think reveals uh, something uh, really important. Which story are you thinking about? Uh, it's the story of Jesus healing the man with the, the withered hand. Uh, and what makes it interesting is that this healing took place on the Sabbath. And as you know, Jews weren't supposed to do any work on the Sabbath, although it depends on which Jew you ask. You could do a little, this kind of work if it wasn't work. And, you know, you know, I get it. But there, were, there, were, there was it's a lot nice of It's nice to know that theological debate is not a new thing, right? No, no, no. When we're debating, we're basically acting in the prophetic tradition. I'm just saying. <laughs> so there was a lot of debate regarding what did or didn't count as work. And in this case, Luke tells us that, quote, the scribe and the Pharisees watched him, that is Jesus, to see whether he would cure on the Sabbath so that they might find an accusation against him. Yeah, this, uh, those scribes and Pharisees sound like super nice guys, don't they? Yeah, they sound like the kind of guys who would like pop a beer like when their friend can't have any on Lent. You know, just, Ouch. Yeah. Ouch. 
but but we, I think we need to be careful. And I think you and I are really like sensitive to this. It's easy to caricaturize, however we say that word. That's that'll be my Patreon. Um, it's it's easy to, to to scapegoat them, but I think we need to remember that they were really devout followers of of Torah as they understood it. They believed that they were protecting the the purity of their religion. They genuinely seemed to believe they were doing the will of God. And there's something to be said when you have when you're constantly being attacked by oppressive powers and all these sorts of things, and you see someone going around being called, you know, Lord or Messiah or all these sorts of things, you're, you're wondering how to survive in a world that is not intended for you to survive in. And when you see Jesus doing all this stuff, I'd be, I'd be really like, dude, like their, their swords are at our necks. Why are you doing this? You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I, I think, I think, I think, and there's also, I think a, just a strain of anti-Semitism uh, and, and a lot of Christian understandings of, you know, the Jews and all that sort of stuff. I mean, we, we, we don't have to get into it that much, but I think there is a lot of elements here where it's just easy to uh, to kind of scapegoat the, the scribes and Pharisees when what they're being is, I, I think they're pretty understandable. I mean, that's just me, though. You know, that's a good point. Uh, we, we read these stories, um, and, and these stories, these gospel stories, they, they present the Pharisees and the scribes as the bad guys because they oppose Jesus. Uh, but what I think I think it's important for us to remember, and I, I'm glad you brought this up, they didn't think of themselves that way, right? They didn't think of yeah. themselves as a villain. Mm-hmm. Um, and and while we're on it, you you, you brought up um, anti-Semitism and Pharisees. We have to remember that the Pharisees don't represent all Jews. The Pharisees represent religious elitists in any tradition, right? Um, that's so the Pharisees aren't meant to make the Jews look bad. The Pharisees are meant to represent religious elitists. But but even then, they believed that they were doing the will of God, uh, yeah. like you said. So so they thought that they were defending God and defending God's honor and defending the law, right? They they didn't view themselves as the bad guys, and 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 that's important. Um, so anyway, well, continue well, yeah, on with the, the story, but I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, I mean, the last time they compromised, you had the Maccabean revolt and sacrificing a pig in the whole of holies and all this sort of stuff. And I mean, that was the last time you had, quote, compromise and all this sort of stuff. And right. Jews were slaughtered and killed and all these sorts of things. So there, there is a history to it. And when we just kind of go, oh, the Jews are this, the Jewish Jews are that, or the Pharisees are that, it's kind of like, no, there, there's, there's a reason for everything. You know, it's, right. it may not be a good reason. But you have to at least understand the logic behind why they're doing it. Right. Um, and so anyway, Jesus, uh, Luke tells us that Jesus knew their thoughts, quote, knew their thoughts. And then he told the guy with the withered hand to stand up. And he asked this kind of really profound rhetorical question, as Jesus sometimes is wont to do. <laughs> he asked, quote, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to destroy it? And then he healed the guy. And in doing so, he kind of demonstrated that doing good for people is more important than strict religious observance, uh, even if it causes people to be really uncomfortable and all these sorts of <laughs> things when you got the Romans watching you and, you know, it's just, Jesus is kind of like, you know, I'll just heal him. Sorry. <laughs> um, you know, that, that actually reminds me of a sermon series I did a while back called When God Hates Religion. Ooh, edgy title. You take that from Bruxy. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so in that in that series, I spent a lot of time in the Old Testament prophets. Ooh, talk about an intense good time! <laughs> right, 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 right. Uh, and, and they really were intense. Um, 
But they claimed, and you and I believe, that their messages came directly from God. And those messages from the prophets were intense. Uh, so, so basically what was happening uh, in the prophets uh, was that the people, God's people, had let injustice take over in their land. Injustice of all, all sorts of different kinds. Um, and all the while, they continued with their religious ritual, right? They continued going to festivals, and they continued offering sacrifices and all of the the, the ceremonial aspects of the religion. All the while, they were neglecting the, the aspects of the law that dealt with justice and fairness and equality and, and all of those things. And so when they did this, when they continued with the the ritual observance while allowing injustice to go unchecked, like God was pissed off <laughs> um excuse my language i'm halfway through my second beer now um no, you're, you're you excuse baby i am i'm not catholic <laughs> but i absolve you the mint tea says it's okay god god was pissed and basically god told them through the through the prophets that as long as they allowed injustice and oppression to go unchecked he hated their outward religious observance hmm Hate in the Twitter sense, or hate just... I mean, hate's a pretty strong word, isn't it? it it's not my word. It, right, it comes directly from the prophets themselves. Check out Amos 5.21. Amos, speaking for God, says, I hate, I despise your festivals, right? This is, this is God talking mm-hmm. about the things that he commanded them to do, these festivals. He says, I hate them, I despise them, um, if, you're, if you're going through them while letting injustice go unchecked. Um, but I, but I bring all that up to say that Jesus himself was directly in line with that prophetic tradition. And in Mark's version of this same story, the healing of the withered man, Mark says that Jesus, quote, looked around at the scribes and Pharisees with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. And since Jesus reveals God's heart and God's character, we see that God gets pretty upset when people let religion get in the way of healing and restoring people. Hmm. I guess if we were preachers, we could <laughs> alliterate that and say, you know, put it in three parts or three bullet points. But we'd say something like, God cares more about people than, you know, personal, maybe even narcissistic views of, of quote, purity. <laughs> nice work on the P's there. That's very good. Um, God cares more about people than purity. I like it. Um, so, speaking of preaching, no sermon is complete without some sort of an application. So, what's the application here? Uh, is there one? We've we've stated, and I think we've done a good job demonstrating, that Jesus reveals a God who is more interested in liberation and restoration than condemnation. But what's the what's the so what to that? What's the application? Yeah, and and this matters because I think at the heart of it, our our view of God matters. I mean, as as some theologians are happy to say, theology matters. It's like, well, God matters, and therefore your theology should matter. Uh, the way we perceive God determines the way we interact or don't interact with God. I think. All right, unpack that a little bit more. Oh, so you can take another drink? Yeah, sure, fine. Right. <laughs> no, so that our listeners can understand the depth of your insight. While you take a drink. Okay, cool. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. you know, if I gotta if I gotta wet my tongue while you talk, then you know. So no, no, no. It's 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 cool. It's cool. Uh, we'll we'll get into this a little bit later in a in a later episode. But Jesus uses the metaphor of of parenthood to describe our relation to describe God's relationship with with humankind. Uh, a child's relationship with uh, his or her parent is is of course deeply influenced by the child's perception of their parents. Um, children who are afraid of their parents may outwardly comply with their parents' rules for fear of punishment, but that's not a relationship based on love and trust. And of course, love and trust presume, you know, all these sorts of things. But children mm. who know that their parents love them unconditionally are generally better off around. I mean, at that point, you're you're more likely to have a child come to you and tell you, right. "Hey, I messed up." Um, right. And, we'll, and I think we'll never feel free to be our, our true selves to invite God into our mess. One, if we don't talk to God about it. But if we think that God is just going to judge and condemn us and just destroy us, I mean, why would you, at that point, why would you even go to God? Um, In other words, Jesus shows us a God who is forgiving, uh, compassionate, uh, loving, um, anger, angry at injustice in a a positive way. It's not just he's just kowtowing, just being annoyed and going to go drop bombs on their moms, you know. (laughs) But this is a God we, as as we run toward instead of run away from. And even when we're at our worst, and believe me, there's many of us, we all know it. We're all at our worst. I mean, God even runs toward us, as we see in the story of the prodigal son. While we were far off, the father, who is God, it's it's not any other person, that's God, which we'll talk about in the next episode. But even God, seeing us far off, runs to us. He doesn't let us grovel and crawl on hands and knees and broken glass to to get back to us or get back to mm. him it's like god's just kind of like no i see you out there i'm just gonna run to you and it's one of those weird little things of the scandal of a loving god seems to defy both fundamentalist and liberal conceptions of what god should be like when god <laughs> is loving god is scandalous so mm. man that will preach that will preach uh so i'll, I'll add one more thing to that when we forget that God is more interested in people than purity, as you so eloquently put it earlier, we can tend to place the wrong emphasis on things. Uh, In our day, right, we generally don't have a problem with ritual purity, Uh, you know, sacrifices and all that. We we don't do that. But in our day, we do sometimes have a problem with doctrinal purity getting in the way of loving actual breathing people. Um, and that's why I think it's important that we remind ourselves that that if we care more about doctrine than we care about people, we're more like the, the religious elites that oppose Jesus than we are like Jesus. Hmm. Good stuff. So just to recap, we've started constructing our Jesus-centric theology, hashtag Jesus-centered, Uh, by examining what the words and actions of Jesus kind of reveal about God. And so far we've seen that Jesus reveals a God who cares deeply about healing and liberation and, and loving our neighbors and a God who is far more interested in restoration than condemnation. And so in the next episode, we're going to take a look at a little more closely at some of his teachings, specifically the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, and some of Jesus' parables to see what they reveal uh, about God. Hey, the next time we record, you'll be able to enjoy the Lord's beverage once again. Thanks be to God. That will happen this Thursday, which is probably today when people are listening to it. So cheers to that. I might just take some of that to church with me. Don't, don't worry, people <laughs> listening from church. I will not do that. I'm, I'm a good Baptist. I hide and cower when I drink.
<laughs> oh, cheers. And once again, um, just thank you to all of you who have taken the time to listen. Uh, we pray that you have a wonderful Easter weekend. By the way, um, I, I'm going to throw this in there as a as a pastor myself. This is a great weekend to invite someone to church with you. Um, studies have have shown fairly consistently that like 80 percent of people are willing to to go to church with you if you'll just ask. And this is a really great weekend for them to come and hear the good news of a resurrected Messiah. Um, so, yeah, you know, as a couple of pastors who care deeply about the local church, this is a great weekend to invite somebody to come with you. Um, but also, if you have found this content uh, on this podcast interesting or helpful or inspiring, uh, we would love you to share it with somebody else. Or if you've hated it, we don't even mind if you hate share it, right? Just say, hey, this is terrible stuff. Go listen to it. Uh, one way or the other, just we, we would love for you to share our stuff. Uh, the way the algorithms work is um, it, it goes a lot farther if you share it than if we share it. Um, and so if you want to support us, if you want to help out, um, you know, just, just share this with, with other people. Uh, and once again, uh, huge thanks to our generous patrons who help us uh, cover the costs of production. We are just deeply grateful for your support and to all of you. Thank you for listening. Y'all are the reason we're doing this. I mean, you and I probably wouldn't do this if we didn't have at least our moms listening to us. And yes, my mom <laughs> does listen to us. Uh, nice. And so uh, thank you again to those who have kicked in on Patreon. It's, it's really helpful and it's really encouraging to us. So this has been another episode of the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the Internet by God's providence only. Uh, grace <laughs> and peace to all of you. <laughs>